Hello, listener. Um, I'm Alfie Brown. I'm the comic that uh, your lovely Sarah Shulman's about to interview. Uh, my uh, Twitter, if you want to know about the few things that I say, it's mainly about Liverpool Football Club. But, I mean, either way, there are some gigs on there as well. There's a free one tonight, but this doesn't go out yet, so oh well. Um, yeah, it's a, a Brown comic. A Brown comic at Twitter or yeah whatever the handle thing is and then it's facebook.com forward slash a Alfie Brown comedy and my website is alfiebrown.com so if you fancy doing any of those things I mean please go to my website actually because I had a really depressing evening with my Google Analytics last night it was all just like zeros everywhere so yeah if you could go to that and like you know and maybe like you know make me feel nice by like googling Alfie Brown like naked or Alfie Brown's the best so like when I kind of go on my Google Analytics go oh look they found it by googling Alfie Brown naked because they want to see me naked they must really like me or like Alfie Brown hilarious person or something just I mean do what you want but yeah Twitter, Facebook, website just yeah I hope you're all having a nice day that's the important thing So Alfie how did you get into comedy? Um, I left school when I was about 16 or 17 some I don't know and um, I went to go and work in Topshop for 10 months to earn a bit of money and then got fired for crossing off the word top on all the plastic bags and writing sweat Um, and yeah had a little bit of money and decided that that was like in terms of qualifications that's what I that's what I that's what I was that was my level and this seemed like the most likely thing, you know, area in which I could make money and something I'd always loved, but it always seemed like, I always loved stand-up, but it always seemed a little bit arrogant of me to say, oh, I could do that. So I always thought it seemed like the most difficult job in the world. Um, so anyway, I gave it a go. I went to a um, a small comedy night above a pub in central London. And when I watched that, I thought, well, I'm at least that good already, um, because it was a bad night, and um, and yeah, then I started. I think that's how I started. Yeah, that's me. So, what was your first gig like? Um, I couldn't get a gig anywhere, so I entered the Laughing Horse New Act of the Year competition and took a train up to Edinburgh. I had a very rich girlfriend at the time who saw the bed and breakfast we were staying in and uh, objected uh, and booked us into the Sheraton. Uh, so we stayed in the Sheraton, uh, and we did, um, I did, yeah, my first ever gig in, uh, Lindsay's and Broughton Street, um, Deliso Chaponda won my heat, and, um, and I was, it was a one, I was a one-liner comic, my first ever gig, uh, and they were pretty bad jokes, if memory serves, which I'm pretty sure it does. So after you did your first gig, how often did you start gigging after that? Um, my first gig, then I had my second gig a week after. Then that was in uh, that was that was that was a night with swear words in the title, um, a, but one that was spoonerized. So it was like, but we don't need to go into that. And um, that was fun. That was a lot better. I got so drunk that I ended up pooing on the floor of my hotel room. Um, I don't really know where you needed a hotel stay in Brighton, but anyway, I did at the time, anyway. And um, and then I used the money I saved up at Topshop to go travelling. So I didn't do it for a while after that, apart from one gig in Melbourne. So how, how long was your break from stand-up? 
a month, two months. I mean, yeah, I started pretty much straight away when I was 18. Um, yeah. And so did you always want to go into comedy as a child? Or did you think that you enjoyed comedy, but you could never really see yourself doing stand-up? I don't know. It was, it was more of a hero worship thing for me when I was a kid. Like, because I, my two, when I was like a toddler, the two people in the world who I thought were like superheroes, I loved Superman, Thomas the Tank Engine and Alexi Sale. Because I always just used to watch that program because mum was in it. So I used to go, oh, look, mum's on TV, and then be kind of going, oh, look, it's Alexi Sale as well. And I just thought he was like a cartoon. Um, so, yeah, there's that. Um, I don't know, I used to watch the kind of, you know, those programs on like Paramount Comedy, like the Edinburgh and Beyond and the Comedy Store, and used to watch certain people and go, there was like a rant that Mitch Ben had about BMW drivers, a bit, um, that John Gordillo had about theatre critics and Patrice O'Neill on um, uh, I believe in God but I don't follow a religion you know because I don't want to be like devout wrong shit um, which I always found amusing um, yeah but I never thought I could do it because I you know what the f- what have I done and so you were saying that when you first started that you, you were doing one-liners and now your style is quite different to that. So how did that change develop? Um, well, I don't know. I, I, found, I found comedy a lot more exciting when I was talking and venting about the sort of things that made me angry and sort of things that were worrying me. And through some sort of like tribalistic thing with my dad... He always went, I hate cats, but I love dogs. And I went, yeah, you and me, Dad. And then ended up writing a bit about cats and dogs. And that was like, you know, a hack nonsense. But at the same time, it was because it was, there was this, you know, patri kind of link kind of thing. I did really feel about it, but I was getting so much more angry about Like I was, if you like just heard the volume levels and seen my face, you would have thought I was talking about Israel. But it was about cats and dogs, and it was just nonsense, rubbish, sort of, you know, rubbish. Um, but then I started, I don't know, other things that, like, awful pop music has always made me very, very angry, because I don't really, it feels like, you know when you have one of those nightmares, where you're sitting down with your family at Sunday lunch, and then, like, you know, your mum goes, okay, we're all, we're all just going to shave each other's heads now. Like, it's the most normal thing in the world. And then you go, what, Mum? We never shave each other's heads. And she goes, yeah, every Sunday we shave each other's head. Let's let's do it. And then you kind of go, no. And then the nightmare continues. Like, everybody's reality is different to yours. That's what people liking Adele is like for me. I don't understand. Like, if she'd sold 300,000 albums, that would have been fine. But I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand. And it's like... It's like the world's sort of stolen a bit of reality from me because I don't get it, how that is okay. Um, so anyway, yeah, it's always just been things that made me angry. And I like getting sort of your taste, your style changes with your taste, you know, like loving Stuart Lee as a, as a, as a, as a teenager and then moving on to kind of more American comedians as, at a later age like George Carlin, Louis C.K., Bill Burr and Patrice O'Neill. And through that, you discover a different way of writing um, that's a lot more improvised and a lot more natural and a lot more honest. 
maybe that's unfair to sort of say honest as it sort of takes away from other people's honesty but no that's what I think so you were saying that when you discovered American stand-ups that that really had an effect upon your writing so how do you go about writing your material now um now it's it's a lot more it's having an idea for something and going up on stage and going going away with it it's it's a lot more improvised with sort of notions of the essence of jokes that you might have like the you know funny ideas and then when you're on stage having a pig-headed unwillingness to finish the bit taking pauses and asking questions i imagine it in my brain like a spider diagram so you've got the bit in the middle of the bubble and then you've just asking constant questions like that you know like what is he wearing what why that hat um what kind of place is it what does it smell like what would it be if it was on tv what's a good metaphor to describe the way his face looks you know or any sort of situation or any topic it's always good to you know just extrapolate from as many angles as you can and that's you know how to write a bit then you'll I always record it on one of my doobries like you're pointing in my face and then listen back to it and think and then just cut away all the fat remember and like it's self-preservation I don't need to write that down I can listen to it back before I do a gig and if it's funny, I'll remember what it is. I don't. I want to get that laugh, and my subconscious brain wants to get that laugh to the extent that it will remember whatever I've said that's funny that was improvised. And there's very little of it written down now. I don't really know. I don't know. It's still kind of like it's still a process that I'm sort of learning. I don't know where it will end up. Like I think that I have. I have a bit in the beginning of my show about the idea of a benevolent dictator, and I want. And then there's other bits that are sort of political as well. But it's all about the fact that we don't live in a democracy. We live, we just kind of choose our tyranny. And the corporation is the sort of overarching emblem of our kind of political generation. Oh, it's quite a good sentence. Um, so I think that, yeah, I might need to write that sort of slightly more in slightly more of a scripted way than I would write the bit about. And also when I'm talking about something like Facebook, I when I improvise it on stage, I end up talking about what a lot of just nonsense about it and not making the point that I want to make, which is that we are, as a generation being taught to view ourselves as brands. It's the idea of branding and lying. And like, you know, Coke never tells you that it's killing you, obviously, because you don't, you don't want to buy it. Well, cigarettes do, that's interesting. But um, Facebook doesn't do that. And like, you, nor me, nor anybody else who is on Facebook is as attractive as they are in their Facebook profile photo never happens or as interesting they maybe have got a picture of like George Orwell going oh look I'm interesting you're not that interesting and your Facebook status is you know had a really nice walk in the wood today and that's like that's one thing you did that day and that's only your status because it's the one thing you did that day that wasn't masturbating so yeah I think I find it really exciting and it's I get completely addicted to improvising and talking to people when I'm on stage and like you know reading interviews with Louis CK where he says you just got to keep away from the material for as long as possible so think about a new thing each day and every single day you get to notice something on the tube like oh I fancy that black man a little bit that's weird I thought I was straight or you know why that guy's eating alone outside 
on Pizza Express. It's not even uh, Pizza Hut. Sorry, that's a lot more depressing. And it's not even a nice day. That's funny. I can talk about that. And then like that's just there. And I did that one day, and now that's a bit that I open with about my wife saying that she would desecrate Dominic West, which I've, it's an unpleasant language. Anyway, it's a bit, but I won't do it for you now. You're saying that your your first gig ever was in Edinburgh. But since then, um, with the Edinburgh Festival, you've performed for years now, including being part of the Lunchtime Club, and then you did a double-hander with Ivo Graham. And then you've performed two solo shows, both The Love You Take and last year's Soul for Sale. And this year, your show is The Revolting Youth. So what's been your experience of the Edinburgh Festival? The Lunchtime Club was cool. I really enjoyed that. Um, it was weird because I um, I had this like audition for it and uh i was so nervous about it because i've always auditioned for the comedy reserve and they'd always gone mm, very well done but no absolutely not um and i was i was so nervous about the audition for the lunchtime club that i stayed up all night i couldn't sleep so i went into boots the next day and got like q10 pills barocca pills caffeine pills all these sorts of pills had like a selection of relentless red bull absolutely everything i had and um, and then like mainlined it all before the gig and was so completely haywire that I wasn't sure whether it had gone well. They ended up staying all night, out all night with Naz and Kieran from Wit Tank and uh, for some reason didn't die. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, it, I, I didn't think I got it, but I did. I had this lovely little bit about my, me feeling sort of okay and about uh, because my girlfriend at the time farted in bed that was quite a nice bit actually I'm remembering it for the first time now but I sort of felt because she was so beautiful I never felt like I was worthy but then she farted in bed and I'm like oh she's just a human um and then yeah the two-handed with Ivo Graham was cool and then the love you take was an unmitigated disaster I loved that show a lot and it was my first hour, and I invited all my friends to all the previews, and because they're my friends, they were going, ha, 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 it's very, very funny, I'll be, ha, 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 it's the best thing I've ever seen. And I went, oh, I'm probably going to win the award this year. Um, and I had no PR, no producer, um, and it was just a disaster. It was so depressing. I was living by myself on Cowgate. Um, I was really good friends with Mark Smith, who was doing the Dreg sketch show with Mark and, and, and Max Higgins, really good friends with Mark Smith and Max Higgins, and go to meet them after Dregs every night, and they go, oh yeah, it was sold out again, it was really cool. Oh, yeah. <sighs> Depressing. And I had had like three people in, and then like two left by the end of the show. Oh man, it was depressing. And I just thought it was such a sweet show. And then, um, you know, Soul for Sale was very much a reaction to that failing miserably. That's why that show was so incredibly angry, because Love You Take was so sort of sweet, and you know, it was okay, we've got some time on Earth, and I think we should just love each other, ha ha ha. And then like Soul for Sale was, everything's ruined, everything's awful. So what can people expect from your show this year? I don't know. I don't know, all my shows are about the same thing, really. It's all about my anger and loathing of my own generation and then you know a call to arms about the fact that we should be fighting more or you know screaming more or loving more or something 
But I mean, stylistically, it's quite different. Soul for Sale was all scripted, every single word of it. And this is not scripted at all. So that aspect is different. But sectionally and sort of thematically, it's quite good. Also, this is, I'm ending... This is the first time I'm ever trying. I'm ever going to end a show on a joke. I, uh, it's a, it's a, and also I tell a story about my own life, which I never done before. Uh, but it sort of it works. But I love the story. Um, and yeah, it's going to finish with that, and it's going to be a joke. And it just because going to see Louis C.K. at the Hammersmith Apollo, and that bit, you're just sending, posting a mean comment on nude tube while you're taking it shit. Okay, see you later. And then you're like the kind of cacophony of laughter kind of works into the sort of and you can impact so much more if you sort of leave with a thump and then bye. Oh my god, the rhythm of that was perfect. And the build up with people shouting back, but maybe Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The whole like, you know, of course, but maybe. I don't know. Okay, I'm just an idiot. Um anyway, yeah, so I've 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 I'm excited about doing that and telling the story and yeah, I really, really like it. Um, I think it's a lot more. I think with Soul for Sale, like I liked the show and I agreed with what I was saying. I thought we had some intelligent bits in it, but there was still the element of pretense there. Like I wasn't being completely myself. And you have the idea of this person that you want to be on stage, whereas it's actually a lot more interesting and helpful for other people if you're the sort of person you actually are and you can kind of be a bit more depressing. Like, you know... All that nonsense at the beginning of Soul for Sale, like, you know, playing Rage Against the Machine and look at me, I'm a sort of cool guy. And who's this idiot? Like, that's not a real person. Um, so, yeah, it's just a. Yeah, it, it's a lot more honest and a lot more. We're all a bit useless rather than those people are useless. So what advice would you give to someone taking a show up to the Edinburgh Festival for the first time? Um, when am I giving them the advice? What month am I giving them the advice in? Now. Oh. Uh, uh, so, well, advice before and then after and then also taking a show up the year after. What's been your experience of, I mean, you were saying earlier that you, you didn't have a producer, you didn't have PR. So there are a lot of acts, especially who are doing free fringe, who are in that situation. So what would you say to them? Um, I just think the way in which you should... Uh, there are things that I would do and wouldn't do again. There was a, there's a wonderful mate rest in peace company sort of thing called the Five Pound Fringe, which I'm sure you remember, which was just beautiful and wonderful. And the Lunchtime Club, you know, was, you know, amazing. It kind of got me into Edinburgh, and I'm eternally grateful to them for that. And I also enjoyed my two-hander with Ivo. However, the Lunchtime Club was brilliant, and I wouldn't take it back. That's the, it should be your first step, is, like, you know, try and get in a package show. If you can't get in a package show, make your own package show. Do it on the free fringe. And then do a two-hander on the free fringe. Don't pay money for it. That I, re I regret paying money for it, much as I absolutely adored the £5 fringe. I would still have done it with Ivo. Ivo's a boss. He's awesome. Um, and also my first show... I don't know. You, you, I did my first show like because I felt like I was ready, but I wasn't. If I really... And I really admire people who can kind of go, I'm going to do 45 minutes on the free fringe. And I think you should probably just do 45 minutes on the free fringe for about three years. And then... When you've done that for three years, go, okay, um, it's uh, producer time, it's 
PR time, it's big four venue time, it's, you know, throwing everything at the wall time. And then, you know, take that gamble. And if it doesn't work, then you've got to do it again next year. And that's just you entered in then. But, I mean, I, I, I spent a whole lot of money last year and, you know, it was a gamble because it could have gone all, you know, up the swanee, not gone at all well. And luckily, a few nice reviews, I managed to get, you know, an agent who's the best person in the world. I love so much that I sort of want to get their name tattooed on my arm. Um, and, yeah, you just got to hope it works out. But, you know, take your time, 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 and then smash it in the mouth with your, with your head that would be my advice well um in an interview you said that comedy on television is a current impression of what comedy was did i yes Which interview? the the one on youtube okay. <laughs> so what direction would you want to see comedy on television moving in and also what direction would you want to see comedy moving in towards on the circuit um, I don't know. I think there's a lot of, uh, I think you're starting to see kind of agents and people like that behaving like record labels in the nineties, you know, they, you know, yeah, come in for an audition and da, 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 they build the stars in the way that they want them to be built rather than letting the artist be the artist and you know giving them the freedom to you know because it's money we it's a it's a plutocracy comedy essentially and edinburgh i mean you know i'm i'm in a big four venue and it's all very well daniel kitson going i don't have a pr i don't have anything like that but yeah but you you did you need it you know everybody needs that and everybody needs a big four venue until they can become you know you're daniel kitson you sold out ninety eight thousand nights at the national theater with you know whatever um so i'm not actually sure if he did say that so i'm just thinking about that now if you're listening i'm not sure that that was true and you might not have said that i'm sure you're awesome daniel um so the way in which you can make a lot of money quickly if you're a young comedian and you you know don't make a protest statement by kind of growing your hair to a ridiculous length and also having a kind of ugly kind of yellow beard um then you can make a lot of money sort of presenting tv programs um oh by the way for everybody this is a podcast so it's i have an ugly yellow beard um uh and long hair i was talking about myself so you present TV and you present, you know, a bunch of nonsense and then, you know, it's easier to get gigs because you've got a low-level celebrity and that's what people want. It's it's breaking into TV and it's becoming more and more, like, cynical in the same way that Hollywood stand-up is in that you move there so you can get in an Adam Sandler movie and that's what you why you do stand-up. It's not for the love of the actual craft. And lots of people start doing that as they see it as an in it's the new rock and roll it's very fashionable it's a good way to get seen by producers it's very trendy and it's not for the actual love of the craft you could like have a cull of most of no not most of but a lot of and the thing is that it's it's the more simplistic brand of comedy that gets on tv because that's what sells it's it's because everyone can enjoy something that is of requires no engagement but 
it takes. I mean, people aren't being given the opportunity to explore their own potential to enjoy things. You know, people liked Dylan. That wasn't for no reason. He was saying something. And people, you know, that was the masses as well. But we're being kind of lobotomized in every single aspect of culture, including comedy. So, you know, the alternative comedy experience can only be a good thing, which I will be on in September. So do watch it. Um, I'm not sure it is in September, but, you know, just watch it. Um, and, you know, other aspects of... I just think people need to be a bit braver in their selections of, you know, people are wet and like so scared of offending anyone so uh it just would be good to see tv producers with a little bit more bravery and a little bit more willingness to experiment rather than this just like it's vapidity and nonsense is vapidity a word sounds like it it is now it is now um yeah it's just nonsense it's rubbish I don't really know. I thought I think I went off on one there. Sorry. Well, you also said in the, that interview that um, one of the reasons why you don't feel that big arenas are the right venue for comedy is because it loses that intimacy. So do you see intimacy as the most important factor in a comedy gig? Well... Yeah, I think it's, I think it's, I don't know, is it, I don't, I'm just thinking about the word intimacy now. Um, I think if you kind of talk to a comedian about what they want, like, you know, even without saying intimate, the word intimacy, if you talk to a comedian, oh, how's the room that you played last night? Oh, it was awful, there was really high ceilings, you know, they were, the audience were a bit spaced out, you know, the room was too bright, all of those things are things that detract from the intimacy of a gig but nobody would ever have said the word intimacy those are just things that it's known you should have it should be a dark room with a well-lit comedian people close together and the low ceiling all things that kind of factor in and like it's never going to be good enough comedy in an arena it's never it's never going to feel because comedy should be a dialogue. It should be kind of part of an internet. It should be a dialogue whereby I talk and your part is the laughter, and that's we exchange that. But you should feel like you know me. You should feel like there's some sort of humanity about me. And if I'm like you know, Eddie Izzard, probably I, I don't think he can get away with doing an arena because I just think you lose so much through not being able to see the guy and having to watch him on a screen, might as well watch him on DVD. I don't care about that. Like, I mean, it's nonsense. You're just, you're only doing it for the money. I know Louis C.K. did it, but he's got a family. I have to excuse him somehow. Um, so, and Chris Rock as well. But I mean, Chris Rock is sort of flashy. And Eddie Izzard is flashy as well. You know, come out of a book and all that sort of stuff like that he used to do. He can get away with that because he sort of sets himself up as an outsider. And because there's so much, like, that he has to punch up against, like being a transvestite and being just weird, he can come out of a book and everybody goes, yeah, good for you, you're a transvestite and you came out of a book, that's great stuff. And you're playing the O2, good on you, though he's not a transvestite anymore for some reason, how does that work? Um, so, um, I think, yeah, into, uh, yeah, I've never used that word before, but well done you. 
um, well, on us, uh, intimacy is the key to a comedy gig. And intimacy, yeah, because I think you want to know the person. And that's when you'll get true. Because you, when somebody is talking about something on stage, if they're being truly honest about it, it helps you to kind of understand your place in the world better. Because, yeah, yeah, that was a really messed up thought he had, but I had the same one and now I don't feel alone anymore. It's so great that he was able to be honest about that or she was able to be honest about that or find that. Or there's something about the explorative and the bizarre and, like, you know, Tony Law's brain goes somewhere that yours goes in kind of moments of madness, but he's managed to be sort of graceful and fluid about it and make, kind of take you to that place that you sort of adore in your own brain that's you know what it should be so if it's you know not intimate not personal not honest it's nothing it's of less value surely who could possibly argue and that it allows a stand-up to engage and connect with their audience so would you say that honesty is just as important as intimacy so that if intimacy is the nature of the room then honesty for the stand-up is key to them yeah i would say that i would say but yeah i yeah yeah you just sort of fall in love with honesty in a weird way it's once you realize that you can be so free because the world is so full of like rhetoric and nonsense and people just kind of like filling up hours and just kind of getting rid of them like sweeping them away just kind of winding down the clock to death by watching location, location, location or whatever it is that they're watching I mean it's great, you can't spend your whole life doing activities and like nourishing your brain sometimes you've got to watch location, location, location that's my like that's how I get closer to death that's how I choose to get closer to death is location, location, location Um. so yeah, I mean if you can be, I just wish our politicians could be more honest. And if George Osborne just went, well, yeah, we are going to take away welfare, but at the same time give corporation tax breaks. But that's because they've got the best paid lobbyists in the world and we're in their pocket because that's just the way it is. We're, nothing I can do, really. You know, sorry. And then everybody go. Oh, I do hate the tax system, but you fair enough. And then everybody just get on with it. Like if you're just honest about things, like I don't, people wouldn't be so angry. I think yeah, honesty is, is for me. It's 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 what I want, and that's sort of it. It all becomes observational comedy in a way, because you're you're observing what might happen in the depths of your own person, and you know holding that up for everybody else to see so they can kind of attach themselves to it if they want to um and that's why i don't really think you know what i think like, being the, the idea of offense is weird i'm just trying to chat and what's the problem why can't you just let go you're so attached to your own outrage that you know it's only because you you know have some weird thing in yourself where you're worried that you might you know be a paedophile or you're married that your dad never loved you or something like that you know that's what the only reason why you're angry just let go let go just come out you toured around croatia performing comedy and also in the uk you've performed all around the country so what was your experience what's been your experience with gigging around the world how do different audiences compare 
Well, Croatian audiences very much the same to same as rather um, the audience at the uh, student gig in Aberystwyth, and the link I can make there is that they are so shocked that anybody's gone all the way to Croatia slash Aberystwyth that they're kind of like overjoyed. Like, it, Aberystwyth Student Union and also a lot of the gigs in Croatia are the sort of gigs where you make a little joke and then everybody loses it. Loses it in a kind of cataclysm of madness and laughter and you're kind of going dude that wasn't it wasn't that i've told that joke before and it is never that funny in the same way that when a joke dies you can go that always usually gets a laugh so i do know that it was your fault like unless you've delivered it wrong but that's you know happens sometimes sometimes um but uh yeah I think that, that, that that's that's the thing. The Croatian audiences, like, they all speak English very, very well. If you're going to go to an English-speaking comedy night, you've got to be pretty confident in your own levels of English to venture out the house to it. Um, same in Aberystwyth. Uh, you know, if, you, if Welsh is your first language, you're going to have to go and... But, uh, yeah, those two gigs are best, you know. The one of the gigs in Croatia was awful because it was full of 40- to 60-year-old Croatian women and they didn't like me very much which is to be expected I was fine with that they were all English teachers at a conference that we were performing at but they loved Jeff Leach so <laughs> like you know and he's got loads of bits about you know he's a very good comedian and like you know an intense performer but when he's doing all that stuff about squirting it's not a square swear word so I can say squirting um you paint the picture yourself, audience at home. Um, yeah, and they were kind of loving that. Going, ah, ha, 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 ha. But as soon as I start talking about Adele being a no talent, I know they've all heard of Adele in Croatia. Anyway, um, the audience that I really love to con, like, you know, my language is bad for a start, conquer. It's not the sort of language you want to be using. You don't want to conquer an audience, you want to go with an audience somewhere. Awful man. Um, are those like there's a the ninety nine club in Islington? Is it's so difficult, but you can do it because you've got to be kept. But the, the, the thing is that the hard the hardest gigs are the ones that take more convincing for an audience to like you. Like nobody is going to like me really because of you know I wear a lot of black, you know, and not in like a trendy way. So there's isn't like even like that you know. Oh look, it's a star. It's like oh look, it's a homeless guy wearing black, and I've got like a top knot. And nobody really knows what to do, and like the my voice is just nothing. It's like RP. Like I was, I did the Kilkenny Comedy Festival the other day, and Andrew Maxwell was on the same gig as me a couple of times. He is amazing. He's one of my favourite dudes. He's incredible at comedy. He's ah, oh, it's just amazing to watch him, and. Uh, he was um he was on and uh um and the uh, audience in Ireland were loving him going ah oh, yeah you're irish we're irish it's great oh, we love being irish and you're irish and we're irish yeah and then he comes to this country and everybody goes you're irish that's awesome we love irish people and i'm in this country 
and I go, oh, hey, how you doing? They go, it's a boring accent. We hate you. You know, you're the same place as us. It's boring. There's no sense of, like, tribalistic, you know, camaraderie here. You're English, we're English, but England is huge, so up yours. Couldn't be bothered with your accent. Don't care about it. And I go to Ireland, and everybody goes, we hate you because you're English. There's no place for me to be cool. There's no place. It doesn't exist. Where is Andrew Maxwell's cool? Everywhere. It's very depressing. Um... But yeah, I that I love those like big rowdy gigs when they go well. And it's such a different discipline doing a club 20 than it is doing a hour. And I really, really, really want to get better because I'm not good enough in terms of my club 20. And I want to get better at it because it's another craft. And I don't want to have to come on stage and go, I know what you're thinking. I look like the spit roasted combined thinking of Michelangelo and whatever, two people's names, whoever. Like, you know, do that thing where people say that they look like somebody and then go, ah, ah, ah. like you have to put yourself down to, maybe I just did it in a really blunt way. Like, I know, I, I totally agree with you. If you're thinking I'm a prat, then I'm with you. I think so too. Maybe that's the way to go. Like, I do. I just think I'm, I wouldn't be friends with myself if I met myself. I hate myself. Like, you know, all good comedians should hate themselves like, I don't know, it's a very difficult thing to do, I have done well at clubs, but the thing is that I've done really well at them, but I've also died miserably, like, been, like, ironic, clapped, booed off stage, I mean, like, brutal stuff, and the 99 club gigs are great, and I really, 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 um, think Jim is a cool dude who runs it, because he does put me on, and goes, it might not go well for you, this. And, you know, Paul Foot as well. We'll just watch Paul Foot like, struggle in front of, like, a baying crowd of, like, Saturday night people. But then also watch Paul Foot smash it out of the park because, given the opportunity, people can like that sort of thing. That's that it kind of... And Jim with the 99 Club completely proves that. And, of course, you stick on, you know, people who are going to do well. I mean, which doesn't necessarily mean that they're worth any less. Like, I mean, I think Hal Crutton is one of my favourite comedians I think he's absolutely fantastic um but he can smash a club set which just you know and so can Andrew Maxwell and it just gives you lots of people go I don't want to play all those clubs no it's because you know you should want to because they're still it's still worth it they're still people they're not all full of idiots they're just full of people who are just you know trying to find their way as well so you know I, I really want to be better at them but I think in my trying to learn how to be better at them, I might have burnt all my bridges and none of them will book me anymore. Well, do you have a favourite type of audience that you prefer performing to? Um, uh, I, yeah, I think a balance of, you know, young, well-educated hipsters in the crowd with a healthy mix of black people black people are the best um it's better because they do that thing where they kind of convulse when they laugh like you know folding up they fold themselves up when they laugh go wah like start whacking their hands together it's great i've i've had it like i've made a few jokes like in uh in a few comedy clubs and when like the few of the black people in the room have gone poo bleh, and it's just been the best feeling i wish i was black um so yeah i think that's what you want and then a few a few like higher 
high quality lads. Like, you know, like, you go, oh, yeah, you, what are you doing? Yeah, I liked it, man. Thought it was good. But you want them to be like high end lads, like not pricks. I think that's the best mix. Comedy Cafe, Shoreditch. It's always, that's where you get the mix. That's where they go, because they come from Essex, Shoreditch, and, you know. And they're also black people. I don't know where they come from. They can come from all the area. But, you know, when I say Shoreditch, I mean that type of person. <sighs> and do you have any tips or advice for aspiring comedians? Mm. I don't know. It's so personal. Try not to beat yourself up too much. Find out how you work best. And if, you know, you can't sit down after a cup of coffee and write for four hours, doesn't necessarily mean you're supposed to be doing that. Just because Josh Widdicombe can do it and it works very well for him, he's great. But just because he works that way doesn't mean everybody has to work that way. You've got to find your own way of working. And if you sit down on a tube and look at somebody's tits for some reason and then think about why you're looking at them and then think about, like, you know, isn't that weird? My mum fed me from hers. And then you kind of think about an idea for a bit about how we're all just messed up. Then you're writing. Just because you're doing it on the tube while staring at somebody's tits doesn't mean it's not writing. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so just the most important thing... And if you're going to do that irritating thing of going, yeah, I'm going to start comedy, but I just don't have any material yet, then just do a gig. Just do a gig, you stupid idiot. Because that's the only way it's ever going to happen for you. And, you you know, if you just throw yourself up there, just do it. And then just do another one the next day, and then the next day, and then the next day. If you actually want to do comedy as a thing, then the only thing you've got to worry about Again, it's like what I was mentioning earlier, self-preservation. If you don't want to have a bad time in front of an audience, if you book yourself a gig and do it, you'll write some jokes pretty quickly. Whether you do it on stage or you'll just you'll work out the best way to do it, your brain will tell you you need to write some jokes because you need to survive up there. So just, just gig, you know. Admin is a lot more important than actual writing or talent anyway. Admin and networking. You know, as long as you make friends with people and ring people up like promoters during the day do that until such time as you get a nice lady or man to book your gigs for you everything will be fine but also just don't do comedy because um i don't want the competition <laughs> so and there are too many of us so just i mean you'll probably be fine you'll probably be great if you want if you're listening to this at home and you want to do comedy you'll probably make it very big. I think I have a good feeling about you, personally. You're going to enter the comedy competition, and you're not going to enter one of the crap ones. You're going to do well in one of the good ones. You're going to win So You Think You're Funny or the BBC one. I can tell. 